and welcome to a new episode of the Glass Ceiling Podcast from Startup Daily. My name is Gina Baldessari and my guest today is Anne Moffat. So Anne is fascinating. She's truly been ahead of her time her whole career. She started working in the IT industry in 1959 as a programmer for Kodak in the UK and after moving to Australia in 1974, she worked as an IT exec at AMP Society and then as National Development Manager for the ASX. There she worked in a team of three to develop the National Strategic Plan for ICT to take the ASX into the 21st century. She retired to Harvey Bay in 2001, but didn't actually stay retired for long. She's been working to provide tech education to her community through a number of initiatives, including the Silicon Coast Extracurricular Code School for Students. Clearly, Anne has seen and done a lot over her time in the industry, so we had a great chat. Have a listen. And thank you so much for joining me today. You have a fascinating story. You first started working in the IT space in 1959, is that right? I did, and I just feel as if I've been paid a lot of money for having great fun. (laughs) That, I think, is the best thing that anyone can say about their work, but I'm not sure that everyone can. Oh, I can. How did you first, you know, get interested in in IT and what was your path towards your first job in the space like? Well, I started, um, just let's start at school level. My parents couldn't afford to keep me on at school for university entrance, so I did that at um, night school. And then I looked for an employer that would give me time off to do a degree because I wanted to be a scientist. I didn't know what sort of scientist. I joined the British Met Office. Um, I'm actually a qualified weather forecaster. I've worked there for two years. And um, they were going to buy a computer. And I was going to go on, on the course for to learn what the computer was all about. And I went to the local library and read all books on computers. There were three in the Harrow Library in England. And then I went with my boyfriend to uh, cycle to... John O'Groats, which is the north of Scotland, for holiday. We'd been to Land's End the previous year. On that holiday, I had quite a bad accident coming down the highest in, in, from the highest in, in England, fell on my face and was turned into a vegetable. From being a good mathematician, I couldn't count backwards from ten. So I was told that I wouldn't be able to do anything for a couple of years. I'd been accepted to London University to do a maths degree, so I thought, well, I'll, I'll read some more books on computing. And I asked them for books, and they found te- another ten, and I read those. <laughs> um, still recovering from my my fractured skull and brain injury, my boyfriend said there was an ad on the notice board at Kodak next door to the Met Office for a computer programmer with a maths degree. He said that the notice looks as if it's been there a long time, why don't you apply? You know all about computers. I said, well, I don't really know all about computers. I just read the books. He said, well, try. So I tried. Um, I got an interview. Um, I I was told I had to do a, a, um, an aptitude test. And I was then told I was the, I'd, I'd got more in the aptitude test than anybody in the UK who'd ever taken it before. And so I was given the job. So that's how I wow. got there. And so I was watching a video um, that you did in which you um, sort of 
showcased the I think the motherboard of the very first computer that you worked on, and you said it was on it was one of only three hundred um, computers in the world. And that's you know, right. So that you know, nineteen fifty nine. Yeah, that's incredible. And as you said now, you, you kind of read all the books that there were on on computers. So yes. I guess what what kind of space was it like at the time and what kind of awareness um, did, I suppose, the general public have of, you know, computers and IT? Well, the general public felt that there were going to be electronic brains that would take over everybody's work. And that there was a worry between not having enough to do and finding things to do in your spare time or not earning enough money to be able to do things in your spare time. So the general public was fairly worried about that. And at Kodak, um, I was in a group of four people in operations research. And uh, we decided we'd teach everybody at Kodak to code if they wanted to. And everybody meant from the managing director of the board right down to the cleaners. They thought that if a girl did that that training, um, people would see it wasn't hard. So I did every Friday afternoon for four Fridays, and then people could could code a little program in Fortran and get it to work on on our our computer. And we did indeed have cleaners right up to the board, and that was just trying to take the fear out of systems and trying to explain what programming was all about. And so in your work at Kodak, what kinds of things were you programming? Well, we were trying to optimize and, and maximize the output of the factory. So the first time we got one system I developed working, <clears throat> we saved something like £100 million pounds a year. Wow. And I was promoted to the senior staff. No woman had been on senior staff before me, and I wasn't yet 20. And the senior staff was usually a man in his late 30s who had a degree. I still didn't have a degree. And when you, um, you know, as you said, started doing all this work before, you know, you had been planning to go to university and, and become a mathematician before your accident and then, you know, getting into computers and the programming side, was there a part of you that said, I, I will go back to uni and, and do the maths or you were set on this course once you started it? Well, no, because as soon as my boyfriend saw me when I came out of a coma after three weeks being in coma, I said to him, nobody will marry me. He said, I will, so we got engaged. <laughs> and in the, in the 50s, if you were engaged and you were going to get married, you, and, and you were a woman, you didn't go to work. Mm -hmm. You stayed at home and had babies. So the idea of going to uni was sort of pushed to one side. And anyhow, I was getting on very well without having a degree. I, I absolutely love programming from day one. And, you know, speaking of having children, I read as well that you sort of pioneered the concept of teleworking in the 60s once you did have children. So what did teleworking look like at that time and how did you get that going? Well, I didn't do that myself. A wonderful lady called Steve Shirley, who's now Dame Steve Shirley in England, started the company. And she started by doing a little bit of programming herself, finding there was more work, um, and asking a friend to help and so on. When I joined the company, there were 13 people in the company. Um, there were four people who worked in an office, and they handed work out to the um, nine or so people who worked in the in, in their own homes. And they were women with, with young children. Um, she just won the contract to analyze the black box flight record of Concord. Um, 
by the time I left the organization to go into traditional work back in an office, um, we had 400 people working from home and I was, the, I was the technical director in charge of those 400 people. And we worked for all the big companies. The government felt that we were a good thing because I'm talking now about the early 60s. And uh, in the 60s, there were very few competent programmers. And, of course, when women left to have their babies and didn't return, that depleted the store of programmers as well. So giving work to women with their babies working from home was thought to be a very, very good thing. And indeed it was. And, you know, speaking of the, the pool of competent programmers, I suppose, I know, um, you know, at, at the moment and for years now, the stereotype or the cliche has been of the, the bro young male um, hacker or programmer, but um, it, it was, you know, in, in decades previous, I've read statistics showing that it was, you know, women were programmers. So what was it like at the time for you? Who were your peers? If you wanted to program a computer or if you needed to program a computer for your job, um, you were an engineer or as I was a statistician, and so mm -hmm. you just learned to program. Um, so, so there were really an equal number of, of women and men programmers, but around the 1970s, men found that their salaries were very high for these people, and so men tended to get into the industry, even though they hadn't necessarily got the basic skills. And women were in general pushed to the bottom of the ranks. They were punch card operators, they operated computers and so on, but they didn't actually do any of the professional coding work or anything like that. That didn't happen to me. Um, I was usually the only woman in a, in a group of men, and um, I guess I was just competent and could manage the, the, um, the work as well as the men could. Mm -hmm. So I was just very lucky. I not had that time working from home and managing all the women working from home. I would never have got back into the industry at a senior position, so I'm very grateful to Steve for giving me that job. And what was it like for you seeing that shift where it was um, equal numbers and then more of the men coming in in the 70s and the women being pushed to, I suppose, the, the bottom of the ladder? It was very sad because, in my view, women make very good programmers. And, you know, I'm generalising because I know some good male programmers, but in general, um, women... When they're writing a program, they think of all the, all the sidetracks that could happen. You know, what, what would happen if there was a leap year day and the leap year day was on a Sunday and, and so on and so on. Whereas men tend to just program the main routes through the system so that when a fault happens, you know, you've got a, a halt in the system. You, you're held up. Um, so women are very good at, at designing things and thinking about all the options. Women are very, very good at testing because they don't want to be found wanting, so they test, 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 test. Men, in my um, experience, tend to give it a quick whirl, and if it works, that's all right, and we'll find the bug some other time. And the third thing is that women are very good at listening to the business people to find out what the real requirements are. If you see a man go into a, um, a first briefing with a business person, He's, he's thought, yeah, I know, buddy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, well, I've worked on such and such before, so I know what you're talking about. And they don't listen, and so they don't end up designing a system that fits that fits the purpose. So yeah. women are very, very good, very good indeed, and make very good programmers. Um, but they they lack confidence. It's got a geeky male 
um, persona in the industry and, and women just feel that it's really not for them. What do you think the persona was back when you had started? Oh, I think it was just, you know, you're, you're a clever person. You can program a computer to do your job. You do your job better with, with uh, one you're programming. And there was no feeling um, that women couldn't do this or shouldn't do it. And so then, I know you came to Australia in the 70s. What led you yes. um, from England? Well, there was a company looking for somebody who could understand database. Now, database was a really, really new thing in those days. Um, and um, I, and they were going around um, America, Europe, England, to try and find somebody who, who had all the skills in database. And they were asking universities and whoever for t the name of two people who, who they thought were the top people in database in their country. And evidently, I came on everybody's list as one of the top people. I used to run, run the British Computer Society's um, database management group, so I tended to, tended to know all the new things about database. When I got to Australia, um, I talked to their database group and found that they didn't really have a problem with database at all. Um, the people who were working on database were doing all the things I would do, so after a month I wrote a report saying that. And the company just didn't know what to do with me because they'd given me a two-year contract at a very high salary. And they knew they had a problem with database. And here was the expert from England being paid lots of money who told them they didn't have one. <laughs> um, so they put me in a big office and didn't speak to me. But, but I knew they had a, had a, had a problem, another problem. I, it wasn't database, but it was something else. I didn't quite know at that time what it was. Um, and it turned out that, that the company was ANP, who then were the biggest company in Australia by far in terms of assets. Mm -hmm. ANP isn't like that now, but, but in the 70s it was a huge company, huge conglomerate. And what was the IT landscape like in Australia when you came here compared to the UK and what were you all used to over there? Oh, it was about 10 years behind the UK and about 15 years behind America because working for Kodak, I'd worked in, in the States as well. Um, England was about five years behind the States. Uh, Australia was uh, about 10 years behind England. And, and I thought, I'll go back to England. I can't stand it here. I, I joined the um, Australian Computer Society. I'd met some people and they really were doing stuff that, you know, I'd passed, I'd finished doing things that they were doing here in Australia. And so what, I suppose, you know, beyond the, the, the two-year initial contract you had, what kept you working here? Well, AMP really did have a problem, and they had re very interesting challenges in those days. And uh, I told my boss, who was then the deputy managing director, that I was really going back to England, and uh, I just couldn't stand it in Australia any longer. So he offered me a 2% house mortgage and, and almost doubled my salary and said, we really need you, stay. <laughs> <laughs> and I was the only woman executive in AMP, so um, it, was, it was a lonely position to be in. I was the only executive in, woman executive in seven of the eight years I was there. And how did you see, you know, the IT space in Australia develop? Look, we've done some great things. Um, certainly when um, Senator Button was in charge of um, IT for the government in that would have been the sort of mid-80s, 
he did a lot to promote small enterprises and, and to promote large enterprises to use the small enterprises instead of setting up their vast data processing organizations within their enterprises. Um, and I've, I've seen tremendous um, links between the universities and, and commerce. And, you know, we've done so much here. For instance, most people don't know, and I'm sure you do, Gina, but most people don't know that we invented Wi-Fi. Mm-hmm. And the government got tremendous royalties from the, from the um, copyright of Wi-Fi. And now it's all over the world. And yet yeah. very few people know that's what we did here. What's it like for you, you know, knowing, knowing all these things and, and then the fact that, you know, these things aren't really known or, or celebrated? Well, I do my very best by talking about the history of computing, and people just are amazed. For instance, the little programming um, group that I've been running up here um, were telling me that we were doing something. We were building a system for Rotary to to address um, obesity in grade four children. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, we'll need to get a, a server to hold a database because we needed all the foods and all the food types and different um food portions and so on, and they said, oh, no, we're building this for the Mac. We'll, um, we'll, we'll just stick it on the Mac. And I said, oh, no, Dirk, you know, you can't. You, you, it's a really huge database. Well, the, the very next day, I was reading an article about the first computer that we, we had in Australia, CYRAC, which was the world's fourth computer. Again, people don't know that Australia built the world's fourth computer. Mm. Um, and um, and what it said was that if the bit from the iPhone were the same size as the bits on Cyrac, and in fact the bits on Cyrac were the same size as the bits on the first computer I worked on, and I've got one of those, and it's mm. about an inch and a half long. Um, but if the bits on the iPhone were the same size as that, the iPhone would be as big as the MCG with the roof on. So, I mean, things like that that, that just amaze people. And I, I worked on the first computer um, with an operating system in 1963. That was the world-famous Atlas. It was the biggest computer in the world then. And um, the uh, people who were building it couldn't get the software to work. So a few of the companies that were going to use it, like Kodak was one of them, um, were asked to send their best people to Manchester to work on the software. And about six of us. Um, fairly high-flown programmers just worked on this software. And I heard um, two salesmen talking about the sort of commission they would get if they sold the computer. It was going for about 150 million of today's pounds. And the chief salesman said, hey, he said, you know, you don't realize that, that It'll take more than two of you. It takes a whole team. It's such a complex computer. It takes a whole team to sell one of these computers. Our target is to sell three to the Russians. <laughs> if we sell three to the Russians, it'll 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 fill, fulfill their computing needs to the work to the year 2000. Now this was 1963. Wow. The computer was huge. It occupied five huge rooms. Um, that computer is less capable than the Mac that I'm sitting looking at at the moment. <laughs> yeah. It would power them to the year 2000. Yes, it would. I mean, <laughs> and the Russians were pointing all their rockets at America and they were trying to get to the moon and all those things, you know. I mean, you know, we, 
when I tell people the snippets of the history as I've lived it like that, they get quite excited. But I've had some really wonderful jobs. Let me just tell you about one that was so exciting. I, I was in charge of all the software at the stock exchange at one stage um, mm. when we moved to automated trading. Now, I didn't build automated trading. A little group of six people built that. But I was managing the whole of the, the other, um, the rest of the software and doing the maintenance and support and development of all the rest of the software and we simply plugged the online um, online trading module in at the front end. Um, we were talking about Git and GitHub and if we'd had something like that in those days when we had a hundred programmers, half in Melbourne and half half in Melbourne and half in Sydney it would have been really wonderful. I mean, keeping control of millions and millions and millions of lines of code that, that was changing fast because the regulations were changing fast was just a nightmare, absolute mm. nightmare. And, of course, if it went wrong, you'd read about yourself on the back page of the Financial Review. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> so it's quite a challenge, quite a challenge in that, but, but a, a really good challenge. I really loved it. I was looking through your LinkedIn and there was a period in there listed where you were technically retired but still still doing some things for a, a couple of years but now you're you're back and working again running the Silicon Coast extracurricular coding school how did you come to be launching that well i felt that i, I have always felt that if people were allowed to telework and live in wonderful places like i live near harby bay where it's where the weather is perfect every day and we can just, there's no traffic jams. I mean, if there's a traffic jam, it's five minutes at five o'clock or something like that. And I would love everybody to telework if, if they wanted to. It's not for everybody, but if people want to, I think they should live and work where they choose. And they can now. With today's technology, they can. So I started off by trying to get people interested in promoting where we live now as a place that, that people could leave the big big uh, cities and come out and, and, and telework. I mean, my son lives in a $2.5 million house in, in Sydney. Mm-hmm. If he came up here and moved in, into my daughter's house, she just sold it for, for um, half a million dollars, look, he could have all the rest of the money for a boat and goodness knows what. Yeah. Um, so, so I'm very keen to try and get people to work in the regions and love working in the regions. And also I found that the local people really didn't understand how to use computers and how computers could help with their businesses. So with the local TAFE and the uni and the council, I set up a little organization to help local business people understand the technology and use it wisely. Why do you think there was that lack of awareness around how to use technology for business? Well, I think I I watch the youngsters um, and, and we did until recently, and I think we're going to have again, have a have a, 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 um, a, a campus of the uni. And you'd see the kids who are very good programmers, very intelligent kids, high performers. As soon as they got to uni, um, they'd just leave and go and work in the big cities. They wouldn't come back and work here. So, so this area tended to be an area where people went to retire. Now, that's, that's a shame because it's a wonderful place to work. I got very annoyed that they weren't teaching Cody in schools. And even when they started, they weren't doing it properly, to to my point of view. So I started the extracurricular code school. And we've we've trained about 
three to four hundred kids, put about three to four hundred kids through that, and a half of them are programming. I found in being responsible for IT education that a lot of people want to code, but half the people you start off with, even though they've got the aptitude, they drop out halfway through. The ones that drop out tend to either, like my granddaughter, be very good at it, but they don't like it, and the other half of the half, the other quarter, um, just don't get it. They just don't get it. I mean, they, you can sit and talk to them till the cows come home, but they just don't understand what what coding is, and they get very frustrated. Mm-hmm. So, so um, about half the people we've trained, about 300, have gone on to to do some coding. So, you know, you said that you thought that when coding, you did see coding being taught in schools. It wasn't being taught um, properly or, or not to your your liking, I guess. Yes. Um, what what did you think wasn't being done properly there? Well, firstly, they were teaching um, Scratch. Now, Scratch, they were teaching Scratch to everybody up to year 12. Now, Scratch is something you teach to five-year-olds. But most of the kids in, in schools now, if they want to, I mean, some of them aren't interested in coding, but they, they know how to, t- how to, how to um, code in Scratch. Now, it teaches algorithmic thinking, which is good. You need algorithmic thinking if you um, sleep in in the morning and you have to do 10 things in parallel and get to school on time or get to your business on time. So algorithmic thinking is good. You need it to understand how to, how to code the business requirements of a company. But, but scratch, I couldn't believe it. And then the other thing was that... that, that they didn't have the right teachers. None of the teachers had any understanding, or very few of the teachers had any understanding of computing at all. So mm-hmm. what you were getting, you were getting the people not understanding, trying to teach kids who knew far more than they did, the kids being rotten to their teachers because the teachers <laughs> couldn't teach them what they wanted to know, kids going home and saying to their parents, you know, we know more than the teachers. The, the parents getting very angry with the schools because um, they thought their kids were going to be taught a skill that they could use to earn money. And the whole thing was just nasty. Beyond the the teaching, the, the, the kids how to code, um, how have you seen the um, awareness of technology or interest in it from, um, you know, the business owners and the other residents in Harvey Bay and the area, you know, grow as you've gone about trying to spread the message? Well, it's slowly. It's slowly, but it's it's picking up speed. So, for instance, I use a lot of my old mates to come up and give tech talks once a month mm-hmm. at the university. Um, so we had Dennis Cooper, who ran the uh, Wi-Fi team, and he told the, the uh, about, 60 people we had for that one about um, you know what Wi-Fi is and how they developed it and 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 so on. Um, a couple of weeks ago we had Bill Cayley, who's one of Australia's top cyber security experts, because cyber security is all the rage and all the kids want to go into that instead of going into programming. Although mm-hmm. you have to program to be in that area. <laughs> um, so you know, and, and we've had. Um, Google telling us what Google sees to be the future of computing. We've had the the um, Microsoft evangelist come up and say what Microsoft sees to be the future of computing. And I could bore you with all the people, but though all the people who head these organisations are about the same age as me and cut their teeth with me. So, so I just yeah. ring them up and say, can you come up and, and talk about the subject? And that, that gets an interest from the town as well. But yeah. 
it's not enough to just teach kids to code. They really have to use what they've learned. We teach Objective-C or um, JavaScript, and, and the companies around are giving, giving the kids little, little jobs to code. And sometimes mm-hmm. they're paying them. I keep telling the kids, if they don't pay you, don't worry, because you've got, you've got something to put on your CV. But yeah. there's some very interesting little projects that are being built here by the kids, by the kids. As you mentioned, the, the future of computing. Where do you think Australia is, is at right now, um, you know, compared to global competitors? Well, it's difficult to say global competitors because we see the big companies, you know, the, the, um, the Googles and the Apples and the Microsofts and so on. They all started with one little person mm-hmm. having a good idea and just being lucky. I mean, you know the Bill Gates story. You know, mm-hmm. he, 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 he was, a, in fact, he's not a particularly bright person when you meet him. <laughs> but he, but he, he's wealthy and he runs an empire. You know, Steve Jobs wasn't a very nice person either. And, and, and I mean, I know he's dead now, but, but you know, he, he, he's left a, an empire. And so on and so on. So it just needs one person to have ideas, to move forward with their ideas. And... Often people think they need a lot of money to support them. They don't. They need ideas, and then they need to move with their ideas, and they need people to recognize their ideas. So that can happen anywhere. A yeah. lot of the people who are now um, heads of things came from the regions. The guy, um, Dennis Cooper, who headed the Wi-Fi team, he, lived, he was very poor. He got through university with scholarships, and he lived in, on, a, on a farm in uh, South Australia. Now, you know, look where he's come. So we can do it here in Australia. I think we just need to tell ourselves that we can do it. One of my passions is to try and get more women into computing, Mm -hmm. either um, straight from school, straight from university, or often women want to do this at at career change after they've had their babes and they want to go back to work, say, when the babes are 10 or 12. And we get a lot of people who've been nurses, for instance, and think they can go into computing. Um, I started a, an organization in 1990 called FIT, F-I-T-T. Um, you can Google it or you can look at fit.org.au and it now has 4,000 members. And these are just women in the industry helping women in the industry. Anybody can join. It, there's no membership fee. There's no joining fee. But if you partake in, uh, participate in, say, a, um, a coffee evening or a lunch or something like that, or you want some education from FIT, of course, you have to pay your share of that. But it's a wonderful organization of women helping each other. So, and, and they take anybody. We say F stands for fellas, too, so we do have a few men. <laughs> In fact, we had one man who kept turning up at the breakfast, and I said, you're really very regular. What, what do you do? Are you a programmer or something? He said, no. He said, I sell sexy women's underwear. And I get a lot of orders here. (laughs) (laughs) So try to get more women into the industry. It's a wonderful job for for women. As I say, I've been in the industry since 1959. Every every day you have to learn some new things, which keeps you alive. And I just earn so much money for having just great fun.
that's it for this episode of the Glass Ceiling Podcast. As always, thank you for listening. If you liked it, please leave us a rating and review on iTunes, Stitcher or wherever you found the pod. Tell your friends, share it around. If you have any comments, you can shoot us an email at editor at startupdaily.net. But otherwise, I'll see you next time.